You're listening to Curated Consciously, your all-in-one platform for navigating and nurturing your conscious living journey. Why? Because diving into environmental justice comes with heartache and a lot of damn work. We gotta do it, but as a community, we can make the load a little lighter. Every week, we're bringing you stories, insight, and wisdom from a diverse community of leaders, activists, and influencers, helping you live a more holistic lifestyle that connects your health, wellness, and love for Mama Earth. This podcast is sponsored by Cause Artists, the world's number one platform for social impact and innovation stories around the world. If you're looking to get inspired, hit us up at causeartists.com. And of course, I'm your host, Jasmine Ray, curator-in-chief at Curated Consciously and social entrepreneur. You can connect with me and our community on Instagram at Curated Consciously. Now roll your shoulders back, get comfy, put the coffee on. It is time to deep dive into some thought-evoking conversation, Curated Consciously. Angela, what does it mean to be a climate researcher? What I would like to start off with is uh, I want to make a distinction between climate research when it comes to industry versus climate research when it comes to academia. And I think this holds true for all research fields. So when you work for a corporate environment, you have a different set of objectives, right? You're working for uh, client-oriented goals. Um, whereas in academia, you're kind of working for uh, to expand the existing um, breadth of knowledge in the world. Uh, so right now I'm working for a wind energy consultancy. It's a corporate environment. Um, my day-to-day work is basically consulting uh, clients on, uh, our clients are mostly investors and developers who run wind farms or want to set up wind farms. So um, I study the climatic phenomena that will affect the wind energy outputs for them. Uh, What are the natural hazard risks associated with their wind farms? Um, What are the effects of, let's say, cyclones or typhoons on their wind farms? Is it risky for the turbines? So that's my day to day. And most of that deals with uh, large scale atmospheric circulation. Whereas when I was working for uh, research institutions previously, um, we used to work on climate models. uh, And that's mostly what uh, climate scientists do. When you hear the term climate scientists, like when they're working for, you know, research institutions like the Potsdam Institute, um, they'll be working on climate models that deal with uh, all kinds of circulations. It's not just atmospheric. Um, there's oceanic circulations, there's sea ice dynamics. There's a lot more things that um, you have to keep up with in order to do research in academia. And I still try to keep up with that side of research as well. But yeah, this is my day to day. Yeah, no big deal. Not yeah, a huge day to day process. That's beautiful. I, I'm curious, you know, as someone who I mean, did you enter this field because you were, uh, you know, I guess what what brought you into kind of be- becoming a climate researcher? Like, where did that passion come from? Where? Why did you choose this field? Okay, this is a uh, kind of an interesting story. Uh, so. My dad was the one who introduced me, I think, to the whole, um, you know, climate change um, uh, discourse. And uh, he was—he he showed me An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore when I was in high school. Um, and that was concerning for me, but I still didn't think that it was something I could build a career in because especially when you grow up in India, I mean, at, uh, I spent high school here. Um, so 
you know, there was no option of like uh, doing something like this for a future career. Um, and I, I was just like, okay, it exists, but like, I'll figure that out along the way. So I took physics. So my background is actually um, a master's in physics. Uh, and I took that because it, it allows you to, to kind of branch out into any career path, uh, which is one of the cool things about like pure sciences. So in my uh, second year of my degree, I think I was like, okay, I wanna know how I can get into the climate space with my physics background. And so um, I began to look for institutes in India that do research and that accept, um, you know, people with my kind of a background. And then I found the Institute of Oceanography. I got a scholarship to work there. So that's really the place that opened up my eyes to all the career options that were available to me. I didn't even know that, you know, like I, I had never considered academia as an option either because in my mind it was always like, oh, if you, if you do research, that means you're working for R&D departments and companies, mm, or right. you're like a professor at a university, and that's that was boring for me in my mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it does. So it, so what I'm hearing is it does it does stem from the sense of you know understanding kind of what was happening in terms of climate change from a young age, yeah. and and um, being passionate about science and being a master of physics. That's amazing. A master's in physics. I literally, there's nothing more badass than a female like scientist is what I've always thought. Like, it's just way, way too cool. Um, but so I'm curious then, so, you know, after this journey and, and, and working in industry, you know, do you find that your role makes you more optimistic or maybe a little bit more pessimistic about the future of our climate and how, you know, communities and corporations impact our environment? Yeah, if I had to plot that in a graph, it would kind of, I would say it would start from the top at like naive optimism before I stepped into the field. So um, before I, I started, you know, really researching and understanding the, the, the scale of the problem, I was quite optimistic about it. I was like, oh yeah, someone will find a, a solution. I mean, come on, everyone's talking about it. And then uh, when, I, <laughs> when I began to research um, and, you know, I, along with my, along with the science part of it, I, in my free time, I was really interested in, you know, social and economic aspects of, of what's driving all of this. And when I began to get really deep into that, it, it just plummeted into this like extreme pessimism um where i was like oh my gosh we are so screwed <laughs> there is no way out of this we're in too deep you know um and then i think over the last two and that, that got that got me into this uh, feeling of like latent anxiety like it was just hanging over me all the time um i couldn't enjoy myself like i couldn't go to a party or or go to malls with my friends you know whenever like your friends ask you to do social things i'm just like oh my gosh are you guys not worried about the planet burning you know like in yeah. my head it was always like how do you enjoy yourself when everything's going to hell <laughs> and then um <laughs> totally resonate with that <laughs> yeah and then i realized that for my own mental health i had to you know come out of that um and so, and, and that only happened like towards the end of uh, university after a couple of my internships. And then I was just like, okay, I need to calm down and just, you know, understand that it's not my burden to carry. Um, so now I'm at this like stage of just realism where I'm like, I'm not pessimistic about this. I have hope, but 
hope is not optimism. Like I don't expect things to work out, but I just hope that they will. Yeah, I really resonate with that. And I feel like, you know, for for individuals who are working in like, whether it's in social impact, whether you're working as a climate researcher, like I can, I just can't even imagine the, like already as someone who, um, you know, has worked in the social impact space for quite some time and has worked in nonprofit and, and, and sustainable development, I feel like as I've aged and as I've absorbed more and learned more and worked in more communities and, you know, that that hope starts to, to, to kind of just slowly disappear and dwindle into the distance. Mm. And yeah, and I think it's really important what you said is that, you know, it's when you're in it every day and you're seeing firsthand just how big the problem is, that sometimes you do have to put yourself first. Like your mental health is, yeah. is a priority in order for you to do the work that you need to do to help solve the problem. Um, so I really, really resonate with that. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as I guess, you know, as someone, because you're also this cool young human and I'm, I'm curious, you know, I'm sure there's probably still quite a few people in your intimate community, whether it's friends or, you know, um, like colleagues, maybe not colleagues, sorry, but like maybe like peers from school and stuff like that or university. Uh, I'm curious, you know, do you find that there's still pretty like common misconceptions around kind of the current state of climate change, even around young people our age? Uh, definitely. So I would say there are three main misconceptions that I've observed. I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions, but these are the ones that irk me the most. So um, the first is uh, the notion that climate scientists will fix this. So I get this a lot from, especially like, so in my class in, in, in university, I was the only person who was in the climate space because um, everyone else was doing like uh, high energy physics, nuclear physics, those kind of, um, you know, very intense uh, theoretical or, or experimental physics realms. Um, and I was this like kind of the hippie of the class, you know, who was all like about the environment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so what a lot of my uh, classmates and um, people who are not in the climate space, like who, who used to um, tell me was, you know, I, oh, it's fine. Like there's so many climate scientists, like they'll fix it for us. And that really, you know, bothered me because I was like, that's, you know, we have no power actually. The people who have the power to fix climate change are the people in industry and government. And these are the uh, uh, sectors that, you know, everyone else is going to work in. Right, like you're gonna go to a corporate or you're gonna go work for a government, and you guys have much more power than than climate scientists do because all we can do is sit there and advise policymakers. But there's no law that says they have to listen to climate scientists, and they're not, right? I right. mean, um, most governments. So um, there is that you know feeling of like helplessness of like people not understanding that we can't fix this for you. It it takes a collective uh, mindset to fix this. And then uh, the second misconception uh, is that, you know, we people always tell me that, uh, oh, we can, it's okay, we can fix this from, you know, we don't have to change capitalism, we don't have to change these systems, we can fix it from within these systems. And I'm like, these are the systems that caused climate change. Why do you want to fix it from within these systems? Why not, um, you know, from a, a separate uh, system entirely? And people don't think about reimagining this. So, um, uh, like one example is when 
people say that, okay, um, take for example, the infinite growth economy. So from every financial quarter to the next financial quarter, you need to see growth, right? Otherwise your company is not successful. That's, that's the benchmark we've set. And this, this concept of like linear infinite growth uh, is so embedded in our economy and our economy does not consider the fact that natural resources are finite. It's not even, it's, it's nowhere in that economic model that, you know, uh, Friedman or Regan and Thatcher's uh, neoliberalism have, have talked about. They do not, you know, factor in the fact that resources are finite and we're putting out pollution. So when you, when you want to fix this from within a system that completely neglects these things, it's just impossible, I think. And, um, and, 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 and also people tell me that like, oh, but capitalism has, has you know, uh, brought so many people out of poverty into the middle class. And I'm like, yes, but now they're being put into a middle class that's told to aim for materialistic growth. And that's what they're right. gonna do. And they're keep contributing to climate change. So, you know, we need to change the system. We need to change the ideas that we feed to people. Um, and the third misconception is kind of related to these, the ideas that we feed to people is, um, the media has no part to play in this. So um, especially my friends who, who are in uh, media related uh, industries or advertising agencies and, and stuff like that, they, they feel that you know their industry as a whole is so um, far from climate change that they don't really have to think about it. But I'm like, we consume media on a daily basis. Like how many ads do we see in a day, right? And I'm not saying that they talk about climate change. I'm saying that the, the behavior that the media pushes onto us is what is causing the system to, to snowball into this giant avalanche that causes climate change, right? So for example, like if you look at um, movies, uh, Bollywood movies nowadays, it, they always have this, they've alienated the, the vast majority of Indians who live in the rural places, like 800 million Indians live in rural places. But how many of your mainstream Bollywood movies are about, you know, uh, people who live there? It's always about this like wealthy upper strata of society, right? And so what that what that inherently um, tells people is that oh, you need to achieve this kind of a lifestyle in order to consider to be considered successful, um, and you need to achieve this kind of a material accumulation in order to be considered, you know, acceptable by society. And apart from movies, there's advertising that's always just trying to sell you stuff. And when we say that the media doesn't play a part in climate change, it's like all of these behavioral changes that the media uh, does to us, that's essentially what's contributing to all of these climate change problems. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Thank you for sharing all of that. So, okay, just to kind of break down all of the like goodness you've just shared. So the three most common misconceptions are basically people thinking that like climate scientists are going to just fix it all and not realizing that they can, they play a larger role as an individual, um, yeah. that, that we don't need to change our current systems and that media, media doesn't play a role in this. Um, yeah. and, and as you were, as you were talking through it, I was thinking like what, something I wanted to ask you was, you know, based on you know, all the countries that you've worked in, what, what trends have you seen in the way that local communities interact with climate change? But what I'm curious now about is just, because, sorry, because as someone who is 
from Canada and has, you know, um, you know, has interacted with climate change from a very Western point of view, and also been very privileged in terms of having like access to alternatives and, and you know, um, you know, really tuning into a, a conscious mindset at a young age and, and being more aware of how you know media and and systemic systems that I'm part of really played a larger role in these 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 huge overwhelming topics. But I'm curious to your thoughts. I mean. In, in the context of India, they, I just, <laughs> I feel like the two biggest like misconceptions here, are like talking about these systems of basically control and oppression. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I just feel like there's, there's so much work to do there before we even like, I mean, everywhere, definitely, but I'm just, you know, especially in India and in, in still being so heavily influenced by, you know, colonization and and uh the british rule and and then you know having and, and people coming into these urban sectors and being completely just absorbed into their phones and media and like i've never seen people interact with their phone the way they do in india um especially <laughs> youth like just it's it's just yeah. it's insane so i'm curious i mean in with india in with india in mind you know where do you think one of the biggest barriers are right now in terms of kind of like tapping into, uh, I guess the consumer mindset, because that's really what we're viewed as, but just how do, what do you think needs to really be tapped in for more? Let's just say for now, young people, because we're That's kind of like our hope right now. <laughs> what needs to happen in order for us to really mold young mindsets to understand how large of an issue this is and how much, how we're all, how we're all accountable and responsible to, to the solution. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in India specifically, what I would say is um, there is this disconnect that I've observed between people, uh, I, I would say, in, in my strata of society or wealthier, um, especially in urban spaces, um, with the larger, much larger uh, population that is, you know, in rural India. And we have this uh, uh, notion that we are the average Indian, whereas we're not, we're like the 20% um, and the 80% are the ones who live in rural India, right? right. So um, we, we, we kind of always feel like, oh, okay, like we should start consuming sustainably and people are not doing it. And, and if everyone did it, but then in, in, when, 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 uh, you know, people of, of my generation here, when they think of that, like what they think of is in their minds, it's a picture of, you know, all the uh, people in their urban space consuming sustainably or living sustainably, but they don't realize that we have sold this kind of uh, American dream to all of rural India, and they're all struggling to get into the spaces that, you know, we have occupied and to imitate these kind of a lifestyle, this kind of a lifestyle, and they are going, they're not going to learn about sustainability until it's too late, right? But what they don't realize is that their current way of life is much more sustainable than what, what we are uh, living through in, in urban spaces. So I think the, the first step in India is to kind of understand what are the practices that we already have that are sustainable, and how do we how do we not alienate entire groups of society, make them feel like you know they are lesser than us or whatever, 
and how do we bring them into the climate change uh, conversation while respecting their knowledge and their opinions because especially like in urban spaces i feel indians have this tendency to feel that oh because i have a university education i am uh, I, I know more than the average like rural Indian, but they are the ones who face climate change directly, right? They know how it affects their land. They know that the seasons are changing. They might not know the term climate change, but they know what's happening. They know that like, oh, decades ago, the weather wasn't like this. You know, we used to, we used to get more yields out of our crops or, you know, um, um, we didn't have, we didn't have floods battering our, our towns or villages. We didn't have uh, coastal floods. And, and they know that it's happening because of whatever is taking place in urban spaces. They're just not sure what exactly is happening there. So I think we need to bridge this disconnect. I think people of my age really need to get out into um, rural India and, and live with communities there, really understand what are the things that are worth preserving to communities, uh, what are the takeaways, because there's so much to learn. I like, honestly, I. I was, I was like this, like when I was a teenager, I used to really underestimate this. I, I grew up in Singapore. So I had this like, you know, in school, I was fed this, um, uh, fed this dialogue of, oh, uh, Singapore is clean and green and, and everyone has to be like us because look at us, we're so rich and happy, you know? And then um, I thought that there was nothing I had to learn from. India. But then when I came to Kerala, it really changed my mindset about all of these things. And I learned so much from the communities there about, about nature and how to, uh, you know, what are the patterns that we observe? How do you, uh, like rainwater harvesting, for example, is such a simple concept. And it's something that everyone has to do in Kerala because the government has mandated it. And it's, 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 it's just something that makes sense logically, but we don't think about it in like cities and stuff. We, we think of it as a, as a, you know, futuristic thing like, oh, rainwater harvesting is a new technology. It's not, it's an ancient technology, right? Um, so there's all of these things that I think people my age need to learn, understand, and then realize that, okay, we need to preserve this and then want to preserve it and then want to bridge that gap between what we, have defined as development, um, change maybe that change that definition of development, and make it more inclusive of of traditional lifestyles, rural lifestyles, and not make them feel like, oh, you need to kind of live in the life live the way that we do in order to feel like you are worthy. Excellently put, like so succinct. I. So just to break that down, so it sounds like we as the young people need to understand that there is these practices that exist that have actually historically always been sustainable because they were kind of uh, the more accessible options for rural communities. However, at this point, we've come so far that we've forgotten kind of how to connect back to the sustainable aspects of, you know, different livelihood practices. And that's something that we could definitely take uh, from uh, rural sectors and, and, and start to understand how we can implement them back into urban sectors. Um, yeah. And uh, what I love about that actually is as you were you know, talking through with just your experience, like 
you know, I didn't think there was anything to come to learn from India. And then you get here and there's, there's just, there, it, there's so much, it's like overwhelming um, because yeah. I mean, historically India has just always been so sustainable without even realizing it. And, you know, it's actually taken me a while to realize that was simply because of lack of access that, you know, people had to kind of make do with what they had. And, you know, that also comes from a place of privilege being like, oh, of course, like that, that's the only option that they had. But yeah. I definitely, I couldn't agree more that there's a lot of um, traditional practices that root, you know, it, far back into the history of India that could actually do a lot of good in, in terms of, of helping in terms of different areas in, in environmental justice, specifically with climate change, uh, that could make a huge difference. And, you know, it, so if that is kind of our biggest takeaway here in India, and I think that's like an excellent way to put it. And I think maybe the takeaway there is like every single young person in India needs to get out into the village again and reconnect yeah. with, you know, the soil, the people behind our agriculture, you know, what's actually happening out there that's actually, you know, fueling our lives in, in the yeah. urban sectors. Cause I think there's definitely a huge disconnect. Um, so I'm curious then. So when it comes to other countries you've worked in, so my understanding, you've worked in Australia, you've worked through Europe, and you know, what what trends do you see in the way that locals interact with climate change that are different from India? And where do you see more or less action taking place? And why do you believe you know that's that's happening? So um, there's a huge difference between I think Europe and the way that Australians see climate change. Uh, I feel like Europeans, um, among the Western populations, I think they are the most uh, concerned about climate change. I don't know if it's also because they're mostly like um, liberal or left-leaning. Um, and so when I was in Germany, everyone's really conscious about, you know, uh, about climate change and living sustainably. They're, they do sometimes, I think, um, a lot of the time actually, underestimate their uh, carbon footprints because they don't uh, think about the, the whole supply chain. But then I don't blame them for it because I don't think anyone in the world really thinks about these things. So for example, um, Germans, like, you know, if they if they cycle to work or, or they recycle, they think that, um, you know, they are living sustainably. And they are living compared to the rest of the population that will be, you know, relatively sustainable. But they don't realize that actually they're recycling, like whatever they put into recycling just gets shipped to China or Asia. And then a lot of it doesn't get recycled because it's just not recyclable. Um, so they don't really see the end processes. And they don't also like when they go and um, go to organic grocers and uh, buy organic produce, uh, again, they don't see the, the effects that it has on like, for example, um, you know, if it if it's if it's uh, chia seeds or whatever is fashionable now, um, like that's all grown in in South America and it's destroying a lot of uh, forest land over there, and then it gets shipped halfway across the world to be put into these organic grocery shops, right? So they don't think about the supply chain there, but their intentions are good. You know, they want to do something, um, and so it's just a matter of like you know, kind of showing. Um, individuals how how these supply chains also affect their carbon footprints. But um, in Sydney, I kind of felt that nobody really cared. Um, there was this like it was it was more like oh okay, it's kind of a trend now 
to become vegan or, or you know, think about um, living sustainably. But um, for the most part, I think it's also got to do with how the governments have set up the place. So for example, in Sydney, it's just really annoying to get um, public buses. Like the bus transport system there is quite, uh, I wouldn't say terrible, but it's not the most reliant. Okay, so you, so most people prefer to have their own vehicle or have a car because also because Sydney is 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 very suburban. Um, there's a lot of sprawl. There's a lot of suburban sprawl. So and and that just it just keeps expanding. Um, and they're kind of okay with that, you know. Uh, so they don't realize how that that layout, that urban architecture influences their suburban architecture influences their carbon footprint. Um, so there's a lot of you know like they don't think about the 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 ecosystems that they live in um but individually i i feel that uh in europe especially people really want to do something mm, yeah. yeah that makes total sense to me and as someone who's traveled to both places i was giggling while you were saying like australia doesn't care <laughs> because I, <laughs> I definitely felt that way when i was there and you know one of the usually when I when I'm like working with youth and talking about the effects of climate change and acting local is thinking or working globally really because you know the biggest example I usually give is like the journey of an avocado because most kids yeah. are like I don't know where my avocados come from and it's like well they don't come from here um like it is well in Canada obviously so you know in, in terms of like talking about that journey of that product and them understanding all of the different like how it affects the farmer and then the, how it's being transported and then what happens to it when it finally get to us and the packaging and you know I think it, it really I think it's really just we forget to just slow down and think about like where do our products come from and I think that's why uh you know platforms like Amazon make so much freaking money because nobody really thinks about all of the background work that's happening with all of our products and services um and it's and it's and it's one of the easiest places to actually start uh, in, in thinking about, you know, our, how are the emissions that we're, we're contributing to our planet. So um, thank you for, for noting that. And honestly, I feel like I could talk to you forever, uh, but I'm going to start to wind us down and like, I'm going to have to like pick your brain another day more. But one of the things like, so um, to our dear listeners, so I came across Angela on Instagram. Um, I think it was the Sustainable Stories Forum because they had recently uh, posted a cute little story about um, my project, How to World and Geek on Air. And then I recently, and then they, they recently posted your story and I instantly was like, oh my gosh, like this human exists. Like I need to hear her story. And as soon as I went to your Instagram, I was just so, I, I was I was just really impressed by the approach that you were taking to educate people to, you know, bringing in this really creative, innovative element that was really like kind of irreverent and silly, but in a, but still really getting to the point and diving into, uh, you know, the most crucial issues that we're facing. And my favorite one was actually around, um, it was around urban planning. Um, so there's like the disconnect between practicing local and traditional methods in like the Arab and South Asia kind of worlds for cooling your home and like combating climate change. And, you know, um, I'm so, well, first of all, I want to know like what, 
what made you feel like, okay, I finally, I just need to take all of my knowledge and bring it to the platform. Is that just because you were like, just tired of hearing people, uh, you know, just totally not understand what was going on or like, you know, what, what made you think like, I'm going to put more time into really building out content that can educate people um, accessibly? Mostly, yes. I mean, as, as you said, uh, I was kind of <laughs> tired of the misconceptions that people had about this, right? Um, also, it, it wasn't just that, it was also because I realized that, you know, a lot of people just did not have the time or the energy or, you know, the willpower to go and, and look for this kind of information. I mean, they, a lot, most people just don't, like, you know, they they have other things to do in life. So I was like, okay, since I I, I, I care about all these things and I, and I read so much, I might as well put it to good use and, and kind of try and show people that like, hey, um, maybe we all need to have like a huge revolution and change all our systems. I mean, <laughs> I'm just, um, you know, I just wanted to, to show people the bigger picture because I think everyone's kind of in their bubbles um, and they form their opinions within those bubbles. And sometimes we need to, we need to have someone like poke it and just let us know that there's like a huge uh, system at play. Mm, that's huge. Yeah, I often refer to people as living in bubbles, just happily ignoring everything outside their little realm. Um, but yeah, we definitely need to poke everyone's bubbles. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and uh, thank you for what you do and bringing all of your knowledge to the platform so people can access it. So specifically, that post that I really resonated with me, I've just been talking a lot with, with young people around um, architecture in India and, you know, a, green design and, and, and sustainable home design and how to actually, you know, just looking at some of the traditional methods and like looking even in the villages and using these very natural traditional um, uh, materials to build that actually help with cooling. And, you know, there, there, there was always an intention, there's always intention around the products or materials that were being used. So they actually had a purpose and, and, it, and it drove towards a solution. So whether that was cooling your home or et cetera. So I'm just curious, you know, why do you think that after thousands and thousands of years of having these practices that have just been uh, so sustainable for, for people and I, I, for families, and I guess sustainable obviously wasn't the primary uh, like priority in terms of using, um, you know, green building materials. But I'm curious in your perspective, like why do, why does India want to follow these more Western practices when we know that it does? It, it just doesn't always work out for us here. Um, when there are smarter, more affordable, and even super attractive options that uh, are that can actually help us in cooling our homes and building spaces that are actually durable and 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 not susceptible to so much damage year after year, like bricks and concrete. And yeah, so I'm just curious what. What is it that makes us just want what's in the West? Mm, uh, so as you said, when, so there's two things. Um, you said that when we know that it's more sustainable, but I think a lot of people just don't know and don't care, right? Because climate change is still a very relatively new concept in India. Um, and, and, and it's a top, down approach here when it comes to education or anything really any kind of information so you know there'll be the the upper echelons of society they'll know about climate change and then slowly the discourse kind of seeps into the into the masses 
um, conversations and it hasn't yet. Um, and secondly, I would say that it's also because it's just cheaper. It's actually scary that it's cheaper to use concrete or um, unsustainable uh, materials than it is to use sustainable ones because, um, and this I will talk about in a future post, because shipping has, uh, you know, be because of the advent of like, you know, large scale shipping, um, everything's just become cheaper to import than to get from your own country. So, um, so for example, just like building materials in general, it's, it's much cheaper to build a concrete house than it is to build, um, you know, something made of like, uh, let's say, uh, mud or, or, or earth bricks or whatever sustainable materials exist. Um, and then there is also the, the, the notion that, oh, okay, whatever the West is doing is imperatively better. Um, and that is something that we, we, I think it's a social construct that we need to break. Um, it's something that we've been fed from a very young age. Um, you know, it's, I think it's a remnant of colonialism um, and it's just, it's, it, 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 it has not left Indian society and I don't know how long it will take to leave, but um, we always have this like uh, blind uh, worship of, of whatever is, is uh, cool in the West. And, and it's, it's, a, it's always like a, a decade behind. So I think like, you know, the climate change uh, conversation in the West, it still hasn't like started trending over here. Um, and yeah, and then there is also the exclusivity of green architecture. I think a lot of green architects here, they try to, um, it, it seems like a luxury concept for most people. Um, I think even uh, I was having this, this conversation with my friend recently, and he was like, I feel that, you know, uh, sustainable living or whatever, I feel that it's, it's a rich person persons um and he and he's in, in he's a middle class urban kid right but he felt that it's it's not attainable for him and so i was like oh how many people would feel that way who are even less privileged so yeah that there's all these factors at play when it comes to to why we don't um adopt traditional or sustainable building methods because we just think that because you know it's cheaper to do the the uh, modern practices and it's also we just don't know and we think that it's an exclusive um, domain. Mm. Yeah, so I think another kind of golden piece right there is the fact that uh, maybe I'm too optimistic in thinking that, um, you know, and, and thinking that the majority are aware and conscious of what is happening around us. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's making it more evident every day that there is so, so much work to do. So yeah. thank you so much for sharing today. Like it, it is such a pleasure to, to hear all of this from you. And like, like I said, I feel like we are going to have like a million other conversations and, but you know, I know we covered a lot today, but I'm curious if there was one thing that you could like leave our listeners with today that they can do to play a bigger role in combating climate change what would that one thing be? I would say have the uncomfortable conversations. Um, I think especially the people who listen to uh, these kind of podcasts or are, you know, are on social media are already a privileged section of society, especially in India. So um, you know, with the contacts that they have, 
with the people they know who work in industries, who are in upper management of uh, companies, who, you know, relatives who are running businesses, talk to them, have the uncomfortable conversations, ask them what their company is doing. Is it because companies, I think in Friedman's economics, it, he, he doesn't um, think about a company as a social organism, right? And we have to start thinking about that. So we have to start talking to people in industry and in corporates and uh, showing them that actually industry, like pri the private sector, is the one making, creating the biggest impact on climate change. And we, I think, um, as the more privileged sections of society, we need to have those conversations with the people that we know can influence these decisions. And do you believe that we can really make a change in the next mm -mm, 10 years? Um, at, on a ground level, I think education-wise, it's possible. It's possible if everyone wants to, right? It's, it's about wanting to that I am more uh, pessimistic about. <laughs> Inhale the goodness, exhale the bullshit. Thank you for listening, and thank you for doing the work. Be sure to jump over to curatedconsciously.co for more stories, tips, and inspiration for nurturing your conscious living journey. And be sure to follow along on Instagram at Curated Consciously. Huge shout out to my incredible husband Profound Sound for the original dope tracks. Hope you all enjoyed, are feeling a little lighter, and are going into a beautiful and blessed day.